0: All right. How is everybody? Um, uh, I'm sorry I got very emotional when I was singing. uh, That song has really meant a lot to us as we've been learning it, and um, we might, if we have time, we might sing that at the end because I think I'd like a lot of you at least to connect with the truth of. He says, "I'm gonna make it." He's already said that I would. How's that for some sort of guarantee? Oh, that just rings my bell. Because I look at my life, and I suppose you look at yours and think, heck, am I all I should be? Or where I should be? What's going on? And yet, we have a wonderful promise that He says, This is not about you, it's about me. So, I'm actually going to continue and pick up a little bit. Um, where Anthe was speaking on Wednesday night. And it doesn't matter if you weren't there because it, it actually is very simple because he was talking about, and you've heard a little bit already that uh, some of the things that were said, but about our story. And, uh, you know, he, he brought the scripture about uh, the fact that we are living epistles and we are being seen. <clears throat> I am so sorry, I've got such a croaky throat as well tonight as well. We are being seen and read. And the story that we are living out is really the continuation of the Bible. And uh, I know that I look at my life and sometimes I think, well, heck, what what sort of a story is this? I want a different one. Who who fancies a different story? Come on, let's be honest. Oh, you're not very honest. I don't think you've been honest. I think quite a a lot of the time we have a way of looking at our lives and we decide what we think would be a good story. And uh, there's some bits, you know, it's a bit like with your children. You, you want them to learn things, but you want to save them the, the, the bad bits, don't you, and the pain. But if we're really honest, how much do we learn from the bad bits more than we learn from the good bits? Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not telling you all to go out and do bad bits so you learn some stuff, but I'll tell you what, you certainly learn it quick. You do, you learn it quick because most of the time you've got to survive it. So you're thinking, quick, let me learn, let me learn. Get me out of this. Isn't it true? Um, anyway, before I get on to uh, what I'm going to say, I read this and it's, it's, I thought it was lovely. For there to be new wine, someone has to crush the grapes. For a city to be rebuilt, someone has to shape bricks out of rubble. For swords of destruction to be made into ploughing blades, someone has to be willing to heat up the fire and hammer the metal into a different shape. Hard work. This, this rock, you rock, this, our, this is our mandate. Are you with me? This is our mandate. We're crushing grapes. We're making some delicious new wine. We're rebuilding a city. We're shaping bricks out of rubble. We're making uh, ploughing tools out of swords. This is what we're committed to. And that's why we uh, sung that song, I'm going to make it through. Because we are. And um, asking the question, how do you put the Jesus story in a language that people can, can now understand. Beth mentioned it a little bit when she was uh, doing uh, her video uh, slot. How do you put the Jesus story in a language that people can now understand? Well, it's actually quite simple. You put him, Jesus, and his story into yours. Very simple. Just put Jesus' story into your story. Doing it again. Little things keep popping up on here. We'll get used to this soon. Um, your story plus the faithfulness of God. Now, you will not be able to do this unless you have faith in God's goodness. Now, that word faith, it always conjures up something that's really difficult, but actually it's a choice. Faith is a choice of trust. We say, okay, this is what I am going to do accept as a fact and i am going to put my trust in it so i put my trust into god's faithfulness about the story of my life that regardless what is written up about me i can trust him to write me up good is, does that sound like a fair okay so i need to ask you a question are you proud of your story the good the bad the, the bits, obviously, that we're proud of. Some of you guys have had your exam results and you're all buzzing because you did really well. Woohoo! Some of you didn't do as well as you wanted, so we're now going through a bit of a, ooh, I wish I'd studied more or what have you. You know what I mean? But we can get so hung up on, I wanted my story to say this about me, and when it doesn't, we immediately go into a, a, into a despair that says, unless my story says this then I'm in a mess, when actually, can we be proud of all that we are, whatever the, the journey is, because it's all been made beautiful by the grace of God. Now, that's hard in a world where performance matters so much. And when performance matters so much, we then actually look at each other and we believe that what God's thinking about my story is the same as what society thinks about my story. And he actually doesn't think like that. Remember, he's, he's the, 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 the one who thinks about five loaves and two fishes being enough to feed 5,000. He thinks in a totally different way to us. I get worried sometimes, and it has been actually mentioned tonight, and I'm thinking, heck, I don't want to cause any trouble, but when we talk about being transformed from glory to glory, it sounds great, but even then we can have this idea that I have to be something better. It always has to be something better, or I'm not making the grade. God won't be pleased with me, or this, that, and the other, when actually, that. The whole thought of this is if my contribution to my story is actually bigger than God's contribution to my story, I didn't need his grace. Does that make sense? If I can do it myself, if I can manage it to, to, to get the story the way I want it to go, I don't need his grace. And I think actually most people want it to be that way. It's very sad that when you talk about about the fact that Jesus has done it all for you and it is finished, like Beth said, there's almost a point with some people that say, oh, well, I don't want any handouts. I don't want gifts. I actually want to do it myself. I actually am very grateful that that I got the gift because I know I can't do it myself. So how do we get written, written up good? There's a, a, a whole chapter of Hebrews, chapter 11, which is often called the Hall of Fame uh, for people of faith. Now, I found this hilarious because what I noticed is that there's only certain things mentioned about certain people. And um, some of it's great, some of it is what you'd expect. So we've got some wonderful stuff about, you know, Abraham obeying and going out to a place and, you know, being really an adventurer and all this. And then you've got Enoch walking with God, you know, he didn't die, he got in a chariot and went up there and, oh, I mean, it, it's fab Noah building an ark, you know, you've got some great stuff. And then you've got a couple of verses like this, which are really funny. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. Stop by faith, Jacob when he was dying blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Does that sound heroic or anything to you? I don't know. How how did it get in here? You like this one by faith, Joseph when he was dying made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. I thought you'd find them interesting. See, how did they manage to get in there? Why was that little bit said about them? To me, I want it to be said, and they went and they did this and that and the other. That, whoa, yeah, that's a great story. But they got in there for a reason. And it was because whatever it was that they were doing in their life, they were expressing a faith in a finishedness, in in something that somebody else had done, not just what they were. And you know, the the, the stories that are in um, this chapter 11 of Hebrews are quite amazing because, uh, as I mentioned, it talks about Noah because he built an ark. But it doesn't say now about him getting drunk and being naked in his tent and basically fathering two children with his daughters that became the Moabites and was it the Ammonites who ended up being the, the enemies of Israel and they used to fight like cat and dog all the time. That's not mentioned in there. Ooh. Abraham, he's mentioned in there, he, he, you know, as I mentioned before. But he doesn't mention that he, he had a right good giggle at God's promise for a child when he said you're going to have a, 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 a kid at 100 and Sarah was 19. He, he cracks out laughing. That's not in there. Has a child with his wife's servant. Lies about Serebine. He says, that's not in there. Moses, we have a bit of a problem with the dead Egyptian. Mm Mm-hmm. That's not in there. Oh, hang on. Jonah refuses to go to Nineveh with a message of God, gets swallowed by a whale. Whale ends up sulking under a withered vine tree, feeling sorry for himself. That's not in there. Saul, who we now know as Paul, who, you know, everybody thinks is the best thing since sliced bread, he called himself the chief of sinners. And he wasn't just being, what's the word we look for? Uh, dramatic or, you know, flippant. He was telling the truth. He says, I'm the chiefest of sinners because he was. And if God could do something with him, heck. You can do something with anybody because where have we got? Murdering early Christians and like I've just said, self-confessed chief of sinners. How come they get written up good? Faith. Faith. Their story was pretty rubbish, except for an odd bit here and there, you know, guy leaning on his staff. Oh, I got in for that. Maybe he's had to, he had to lean on his staff by faith. I don't know. Maybe he couldn't see his staff. Maybe he, he, he didn't know what he was doing. Maybe he was a bit nutty. I don't know. But he got, in, he got in and he had that said about him. Anyway, you could ask, faith for what or in what? And I think I've already mentioned it and I'll, I'll keep covering it as I go along. It's faith that there is something bigger than my story. Whatever it is, however it's written up, there's something bigger. Now, I just want to look at Peter for a little while, because I think this is just great. And it really touched my heart this morning as I was reading it. If you think of Peter, you know, just a regular, normal type of a guy, a fisherman, who Jesus calls, it's not like something that is like he's a disciple after Jesus' time. This is face-to-face Jesus encounter. He calls him to, to, to follow him and he says, I'm going to make you, not somebody who fishes fish out of water, I'm going to teach you how to gather people. And those people are going to listen to what you have to say and they really are going to be, be revolutionised by, by your story. He walks on water pretty awesome. Do you, like, do you like that bit of the story? Who'd like to walk on water? Anybody? Sink, sinks a bit, but he still walked on the water. He had a most incredible revelation. Jesus said to him, who do men say that I am? And he says, well, some say you're this, some say you're that. And then Jesus said to him, but who do you say that I am? And he says, you're the Christ. The son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you. Because nobody has sort of told you that. That's happened in here. Something incredible has burst to tell you a truth that without that you wouldn't have known it. Fabulous. But then it's not long before Jesus is saying something to him about the fact that he's going to have to die. And Peter says, nah, I'm not going to let you die. That's not going to happen. And so Jesus actually says, get thee behind me, Satan. Come on, Satan, get behind me. How do you fancy being called Satan? Ooh, I'm just trying to give you a bit of his story. Is this okay? Story? Then, just to cap it all off, when Jesus is taken to be, uh, he's arrested to be crucified, somebody says to him, you're one of Jesus' disciples. And, of course, he says, no, I'm not. So we have a lovely intermingling of positives and negatives in his story. Things to be proud of, things to be ashamed of. He even cuts off a man's ear. Ooh! so he's got a bit of, you know. And then when it all goes wrong at the end, he goes back fishing. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. The end of the story, I think, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't he get crucified upside down? I understand. Because he didn't want to die the way Jesus was crucified. So he said, crucify me upside down. Now that might be just, um, it might be a legend. But let's say that was the end of the story. There's ups, there's downs, there's, there's all this stuff going on. What a story. And in John 21, you've got a beautiful uh, thing going on that Peter has gone back fishing. Why has he gone back fishing? Because it's what he did best. He'd realised he'd really screwed up. He'd got it, the whole thing wrong. And he thought, right, that's it. I'm off back fishing. No more fishing for men. Because I tried. I got it all wrong. I'm not going to do that anymore. And as he's out on the boat, there's a voice that comes from the shore. And it's Jesus in his resurrected form on the, the shore. And he's shouting out to Peter. And what is amazing about all of this, he's saying, have you got any fish? Now, the story goes that he, they've been fishing all night. And in fact, they've caught nothing. So imagine he's already felt a failure in being a fisher of men. He's denied Jesus and he's got it all messed up. And suddenly going back to fishing, he can't even get that right. And there's Jesus from the shore asking, have you got any fish? And they have to go, no, so Jesus instructs him. This is a carpenter, by the way. He's not a fisherman. Now you say, oh, well, yeah, but he was Jesus, so he knew everything. I, I don't think like that, you see. I don't think it's even true. He, he probably had understanding of wood more than he did a fish because it was what he grew up with, with his father, Joseph, teaching him how to build stuff. So you get Jesus shouting to Peter out in the water, Cast your nets on the other side of the boat and you'll catch some fish. Well, I just think that that must have been an incredibly embarrassing moment for poor old Peter, just to add insult to injury, because he's thinking, I I couldn't get that right, neither can I get this right. He didn't even try to say that there was one that got away. He just said no. No. We haven't got any fish. So he says, cast your net on the other side. Now, are we humble enough for someone to give us advice when somebody shouts who we might not think really understands our situation? Are we willing to do what somebody says? Well, what's amazing, Peter might have felt down in the dumps and incredibly ashamed of all that had happened, but he was willing to do what he was told. And, of course, they get a net full of fish and, of course, they head back to the shore. And when they get to the shore... Peter joins Jesus and Jesus has already got the fire going and he's already ready to make them some breakfast. Remember, before the intervention of Jesus, they'd caught nothing. So they weren't going to get anything when they got to shore, were they, Unless they'd done what Jesus had said. So after eating, Jesus wants to chat with him. And I suppose Peter thinks, oh, like, I'm going to get it now. You know, I got it wrong before. I can't even fish. What's going to happen? And What's amazing is that you don't get what you expect from Jesus because all he says to him is this, Peter, do you love me? And he asks him that three times. Now, I was looking at this and I'm thinking, why did Jesus ask Peter, do you love me? Now, we've said in this house, and we say it many times, that it's not so much how much do we love God. It's have we actually understood how much God loves us. Haven't haven't we put a great emphasis on that? And yet you could say that here, that's sort of challenging that a little bit because Jesus is particularly saying to Peter, do you love me? Now, I've got a bit of a theory. Are you interested in my theory? It's this. Because I think Jesus was trying to find out... If Peter knew that he was forgiven. Now you might say, how? Wouldn't he have just asked him, you know, Peter, do you know that I've forgiven you? No, he said, Peter, do you love me? And where I come up with this is because I, I think it's wonderful. There's a scripture in Luke 7, uh, 47, and it says this. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And those who have been forgiven little, love little. So when Jesus was saying to Peter, do you love me? And he says, Lord, you know I love you. What was Jesus hearing? He's hearing he's been forgiven much because he's loving much. Don't you think that's lovely? You might as well, surely he should have just said that. But no, it was an opportunity for Peter to reveal the fact that he understood that he'd been forgiven by Jesus. Isn't that just lovely? It really touched my heart. I thought, great. If Peter loves me, then he knows he's forgiven. And I know this for a fact in life. You go through situations where people don't love much because they they are not forgiven. Now, I'm not saying they're not forgiven by God and they're not forgiven by people. It might be they just won't forgive themselves. But when you don't understand forgiveness, there is a deficiency in our ability to love. And that's what Jesus was wanting to to find out. Now, that's my theory. I know it's not written there, but it could be right. Is that okay? I'm going to have it anyway. So I think what the words of Jesus were meaning when he says, Peter, do you love me? I believe he was saying, have you committed your life to my care? Do you trust me that your screw-up has not changed who I am for you? Am I still the Christ, the son of the living God, the one who covers and completes and finishes it all for all men everywhere? Are you willing to keep trusting that regardless of your story, my work is finished? And will you have faith in that finished work? Now, you see, Peter said, yes, I love you. But, came up. He says, what about him? Now, isn't it funny how we deflect? We can have an incredible moment of revelation with uh, different things. We can have a moment of, of, of God speaking into our lives. And then all of a sudden, we get deflected. Because, you see, part of the, the, the group who'd been fishing, there was a guy called John. Now, it's easy to... To understand this, because it always happens in groups, isn't it? Where you feel that one person is liked more than another. You know, Jesus had a favourite and it was John. And it, the Bible talks about John, the disciple Jesus loved. Now, I don't think that, that Jesus really did have a favourite, but they had a rapport that seemed to be seen and, and, and it was spotted by other people. And of course Peter had spotted it and you know what you feel like when you've really screwed up and there's somebody else who hasn't screwed up and seems to be getting the the, the best sort of understanding and attention from the person you'd like a bit of attention from. You can imagine what was boiling and so Peter turns to Jesus and said, It's all right you're telling me about me feeding your she- sheep and do you love me and all this? And because he, he'd gone on to tell him how you were go- he was going to die. And he says, What about him? Come on. How many of you have said, What about him? <laughs> I'll be honest if nobody else will. I've got, Yeah, but, yeah, but Lord, I know what you're asking for, me. from me. But what about him? What I love—it's so powerful. Jesus just says, "Stop it, Peter. Ah, no, we're not having any of that. It's none of your business." Woohoo! I want you all to put that on your fridge. Every time you feel that things are going on around you, that you're a bit jealous about, that you think, "Oh, this is unfair," and you don't like this and you don't like that, put on your fridge. Jesus says, "Your name." Stop it. It's none of your business. Tweet that. No. It would get us out of so much m- trouble, wouldn't it, if we just stopped comparing. And, and oh, what about him? He says, just. L- Can I read something now? Because I've given you a bit of the story now. I want you to just. This is lovely. If you've never had the bloke's Bible. That us women read. (laughs) Well, it's us that read, really, isn't it? Guys, who reads out there? A few. All right, okay. And I just read you this because I think it'll really help sort of cement what I'm saying. I am so glad about the questions Jesus didn't ask of Peter, the promises he didn't extract, the kind of things you get pummeled by when you're a kid. Why did you do that? Didn't you know it was wrong? Promise me that this will never happen again. Does this sound about right? Are you sorry? Are you really sorry? Truly sorry? Don't ever do that again. None of it. Jesus seems more concerned about the future than the past. It was the same with Moses. God shows up in a blazing bush and rather than ask a few delicate questions about a certain body in a certain unmarked grave back in Egypt, he's preoccupied with the future. Perhaps he's watched Moses toss and turn in the wee wee small hours. Perhaps he's seen every drink he swallowed to dull the pain. Perhaps after all, the God of heaven really does get us better than we get ourselves. Peter's been kicking himself while he's been down, limping badly ever since those three little firelit sentences. What must have gone through his mind when Jesus suggested a fire? Another campfire. Not only a repeat of the first miracle, the miracle directly related to Peter's job, but a blooming campfire as well. Oh, great. Just what I need to bring it all back. The smell of smoke, the crack of white hot wood, People are standing around chatting and warming their hands. Thanks a lot. And with all that fresh in his mind, Jesus takes him for a walk. Let's sort it out, Pete. I love that, Pete. Isn't that lovely? Let's put it to rest. There's no time of prayer ministry, no sobbing repentance, no court of inquiry. For goodness sake, doesn't Jesus understand repentance? Repentance. Doesn't he know about confession and forgiveness? It was the same lax approach. Isn't it funny when you talk about Jesus having a lax approach? It feels as though you're saying something wrong. The same lax approach when he threw a tortured glance at a thief dripping blood next to him on the cross. Remember me. The words are dried, muddled, barely cohesive. Are you sorry then, mate? Come on. You've got 10 minutes before your body packs up. What about that list of crimes? And do you believe Jesus is is who he says he is? I think I've got the sinner's prayer somewhere tucked away in my pocket. No, none of it. Nothing but simple, brutal grace. We all have our campfire moment. Has anybody had one recently where there's a fire or whatever it is that represents the situation that you were in and you made a mistake or whatever? It comes around again. And Jesus speaks to us by the fire of that failure, whatever it is that we've done. And he says, Come on, let's sort it out. Let's put this to rest. Come on, do you trust me? It's okay. Let's get on with living and loving. Now, often we speak of our stories being rewritten. And I don't know whether that's true. Uh, I've probably said it already tonight. I don't know if it's true. Because I don't think that there's anything glorious about everything that's basically pristine, That's my view. And also, isn't it interesting that when children play, it tends to be that immature um, or innocence that tends to want to start things again. (laughs) Think about it. You're playing a game with a child or building a set of bricks and they fall over or doing something that's competitive. They'll immediately say, no, 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 that doesn't count. That doesn't count. We start again, start again, start again don't they? they want to, why do they want to start again? Because they don't want it to count in their story. So if we wipe it away and we start it again and get it all right, and then clock that up, and then the next day we have to do the same again. What a burden to put on our lives, rather than just saying, you know what? And another day we're gonna get on, we're gonna do some stuff. Some things gonna go well, some things aren't, but you know what? By faith, I will, like we said in the song tonight, I'm gonna to make it through because he already said that I would. So, Peter could have arrived at the shore and said to Jesus, okay. You're right about me. I'm a complete screw-up. I can't even fish without help. You have to tell me what to do from the shore. Best you find someone else to feed your sheep. I resign. And I know that there are times, and I think this is a word for us as a leadership here, sometimes we think, we're a complete screw-up. I can't even catch fish. I resign. But do you know what is so fantastic? Is that, I hear Jesus saying into that situation, what? Resign? I invested a revelation in you, Peter. I invested a revelation. I'm not going to see that revelation go to waste. And I'm saying it to Anne, to me, to Joel, to Beth, to Jenny, to Jenny, to you guys in the in the rock we have had invested into us a revelation we are not mainstream you might want to be mainstream and you might have to go and find mainstream but we are not mainstream we have been invested into had invested into us a revelation that god is going to make sure that we work out and that revelation, it, it's a business. You, it makes you want to think sometimes I'll resign. Because I'll tell you what, when, you, when you're flowing the same way that everybody else is flowing, it's a doddle. You just get carried along. Woo! And I'm not trying to be unkind to, to anybody, but we said we're running the race marked out for us. We don't ask anybody to do the same. But if people want to hear what we have to say, we're going to share it. But we're running the race marked out for us. That means we are not going with the tide. We're actually going against the tide. And that's tough going. And that's why we cry out to you guys for your support, for your help. Not just in us gathering together, but in how we are being salt and light there are people out there fed up with being took, for instance, right? And it was great. And, and, and I hope, I don't know where Beth is, but she told me this about Joey. He'd been going through something on the internet and he came across a guy called Calvin. Now, we don't talk about stuff like this in the church. We probably ought to, to do you all good. Well, some of you'd get bored to tears, but it would actually do you good. Most of Western Christianity is Calvinistic. Most of you don't know what Calvinistic is, shall I just tell you very briefly. It is a belief that God has already decided who has got eternal life. And that was decided right way, way, you know, before the dawn of time. And there's only that many going to get in. So you can evangelize all you want, but the number has been decided. And guess what? Nobody has a clue really who, unless you're a Calvinist, and then of course they're in. But if you're not a Calvinist, you're not. Now I put a tweet up the other day of a little boy walking out of church with his mummy and daddy, and the little boy is saying, is it true that God may have already predestined me to burn in hell for eternity, and the little boy, uh, the father says to the little boy, maybe son, Yes. That is Calvinism and it is what most Western Christians believe, right? And they're proud of it. Do you know what's really stupid, right? That you find them then protesting against abortion because they're pro-life, but they're not saying, well, if the child's going to burn in hell for eternity anyway, what's the big deal? So you get people who are... Christian pro-lifers quite happy to send everybody to burning hell for eternity, but we'll get cross at a woman having a bottle. Sorry for getting like, but this is what, I think you guys need to know these things. Why do you get in trouble when you talk to a believer who suddenly starts telling you, but, oh well, if you're doing that, then that's it. You're going to hell, and this and then you go, whoo, whoo. Whoa. It's because that's what they have been brought up to believe. Now, listen. The truth is this: there are there are things that the church has only adopted in the last five hundred years that the early church, the early Christians, did not accept at all. And then you've got. Oh, I I love it because, I mean, there's a guy in a massive church in Texas um, who is really interesting. He's a Calvinist. But I want to say, well, why is it that you're so convinced that you're in? Because they never think for a minute that they're not. And I'd like to say, well, at least have the humility then to say, I don't know that I'm in either. But that's not how it goes, is it? Now, listen, sorry if I've just got passionate. God must have wanted that to happen because I had not it's not written in there at all so I haven't even a clue where I am now oh yes we were talking about the mandate that is on this house to not be mainstream to go against the tide and that takes some paddling because we're not what most people but that's why a lot of people I believe are sick to death of that Christian message that's, we've been talking about um, what is it? I'm a Christian atheist or I am no, an atheist who believes in God. That was it, wasn't it? Anyway, moving on. God has invested a revelation in us, and He's relying on us to feed His sheep with this revelation. So just to finish it off here. God is the finder of lost sheep, He's the finder of lost coins. He's the bringer home of rebellious sons. Is the sorter-outer of, of people who are sitting sulking under withered vines because he just didn't get what he wants. And all we have to be is faithful to the truth that it is finished on my behalf. That, that's as, as simple as that. You see, all God wants to do is redeem. And it's been said already tonight, redeem, redeem, redeem. Do you know that there are no unredeemable mistakes in your life? I'd like you to say that with me. And we're going to come to faith as we say it, because some of you could say it, but you don't really believe it. There are no unredeemable mistakes in my life. Why is that? They may be things that cause problems and upsets and consequences, but they are not unredeemable because God's in the business of redemption. Oh, isn't that wonderful? So what does faith do? It makes us face up to reality, take off our masks and be real. We acknowledge our failure and successes as equals, but most of all, in our story we recognize God's faithfulness in it all whatever your story he comes to you with nothing but simple brutal grace say it simple brutal grace are there any unredeemable mistakes in your life good so what we're going to do we're going to sing that song again all the way from the top. And if you can just get into the chorus, I'm going to make it. He's already said that I will. And I want you to sing that, knowing that there are no unredeemable mistakes in your life, that you're going to shine out your story, the good, the bad, the ugly, knowing that it's finished in your favor. And that is how we've broken pots and the, the light shines through all the cracks and that's when I'm said about we look, look in the mirror and we behold our face back at us. What, what is the glory? The glory is the confidence in the finished work. It just has to be, doesn't it? It has to be the, the confidence in the finished work of Christ. So are you going to get written up good? Oh, you sound very sure. Going to get written up good. Your living epistles. You've been read. Let God be in your story. And um, when people around see God in your story, then there's going to be some wonderful things happen. Yep. Okay, we're going to sing this. I'll try not to cry. <laughs> but we'll sing it for you again. We, I'd like you, you know, if you don't stand while we sing, but stand if you want to somehow agree with what's been said. Because the words are absolutely amazing. Through so many dangers, toils of this life, I've already come. Do you agree with me? Keeps on giving me the grace. Brutal grace. I love that word. Brutal grace. Whoa. He's giving us a promise. What's the promise? You're going to make it. Going to make it. Do you know, it's harder to opt out than it is to get in. People think, oh, no, it's terrible. It's so hard to get in. No, it's not. You've got to get out, and that's going to take you some doing. Because I'll tell you what, God's got it sorted. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. And he says you're going to make it. So come on, let's take it. We're going to just sing it just from the top. And like I say, if you want to stand as, a, as, a, as an acknowledgement of your faith in what has been said tonight, then, then please do it. And, and sort of just let these words be a connecting point with, with you and daddy. You and dad, yeah?